podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Wednesday, March the 2nd, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location and access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. So if you're a UK expat wanting access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, Liberty Shield VPN can get you where you want to be and, as I said, keep that data safe from the miscreants and ne'er-do-wells who lurk on the interwebs. Check out libertyshield.com and use the code ROUTER50 to get your router half price. That's ROUTER50 at libertyshield.com. You get your router at 50% off. Can't do better than that. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy for all your football merchandising needs. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, uh, plenty of games last night, some games tonight. We'll start with the Premier League last night. Leicester City 2, Burnley nil at Turf Moor. Leicester were unquestionably the better team in this game. Though Burnley did have a goal ruled out by Max Cornet in the first half, that the replays weren't all that conclusive about it actually being offside. But Leicester rolled their luck a little bit on that one. And in the second half, they did really start to dominate the game. They'd forced a couple of good saves from Nick Pope in that first half. One from Pereira that was... Just a brilliant save. He saw the ball late. It was a low shot that came through a crowd of bodies from inside the box. Pope got down and saved. The second one, more of a reflex save, throwing an arm out at Harvey Barnes, well-struck shot to deflect it over the bar. In the second half, Pope continued to be absolutely tremendous. One save from James Madison was just world-class. He really did keep them at bay almost single-handedly. But... He could do nothing about the opening goal, which came on 82 minutes. It's a long punt down the field by Casper Schmeichel while under pressure from Jay Rodriguez. The Burnley defence switches off. Vardy gets behind them, takes it down, feeds Madison, and his left-footed shot from the edge of the box is just unstoppable. Vardy himself made it two on 90 minutes. Vardy loves scoring against Burnley. A header from close range after good work down the left and a good cross gave him an open goal to head home into. Vardy himself had thrown himself on the ground a few minutes previous in embarrassing fashion and probably should have been booked for it. But nevertheless, Vardy was the difference between these two goals, uh, two teams, an assist and a goal coming off the bench. You'd have to say it was completely deserved for Leicester to win the game. I didn't think Burnley played well at all. Losing Ben Mee early was a big, big blow. Nathan Collins had to come on for him. But aside from that, they just looked very stagnant. They looked tired. And once that first goal by Cornet was ruled out, they didn't really threaten all that much. Veghorst had a decent chance from a set piece, but he skied it over the bar. And that was kind of it for them. Whereas with Leicester, you just felt like they kept going, kept creating chances and kept probing and looking for the answer, looking for the win. So Leicester moved to 12th in the table, level on points with Villa, level on points with Crystal Palace. Games in hand on both, one in hand on Villa, three in hand on Palace. They have two games in hand on Brighton, who are only three points ahead of them. And with the talent Leicester have, they're unquestionably a team that should be much higher up the table. I mean, Leicester really should be in that top four mix, but 
they've just had such a poor season that it hasn't worked for them. Coming up for Leicester, they've got some difficult games. They get Leeds next. That'll be Leeds with a new manager. Then they get Wren in the Europa Conference League. That's going to be very difficult. That's probably the toughest draw they could have got. Then it's Arsenal away. Then Wren again. Then they get Brentford at home. But then it gets quite awkward. It's United away. Palace at home in that mix in the mid-table. Newcastle, who are on a high at the minute. We'll see how they are. That game is still six weeks away. So we'll see how they are then. Then Villa at home. Then Tottenham away. These are difficult games. Bar that Brentford game, these are difficult games for them. And they're going to need to put together a run of results if they want to rescue their season and not end up with the embarrassment of bottom half the table, which would, considering the quality they have and how well they've done in the last couple of seasons, it would be quite embarrassing if they finished in the bottom half the table. For Burnley, they stay in the bottom three. Up until the 82nd minute, they were out of the bottom three. That point had taken them above Everton. Instead, they find themselves a point behind Everton with a game more played, still with a superior goal difference. But now it just makes it a little bit more difficult because if Everton win that game in hand, it creates space for them. You don't fancy Everton to win any games the minute, but they've got Tottenham coming next, then Wolves, then Newcastle. We'll see how they stand. For Burnley, it's Chelsea at home. That's obviously going to be difficult. Then it's Brentford away. That's a must win. Then Southampton at home. That's a difficult one. City at home. That's very difficult. Norwich away. Must win. West Ham away. Wolves at home. Watford away. Must win. Aston Villa at home. Tottenham away. Newcastle at home. Again, that's probably going to be must win. And they face Everton in there. That's the one game that's not yet scheduled for them. Um, they've actually got another one that's not scheduled. There's only 11 games there. They've got 13 left. Everton is one. I can't remember what the other one is. Is it Arsenal? It might be Arsenal. I don't think they've played Arsenal twice, have they? Oh, they have played Arsenal twice. So it's not Arsenal. Hopefully it's a game that's winnable for them. Either way, Burnley still have work to do. Still have a lot of work to do. That's what happens when you only win three of your first 25 games. But... The little mini run there with the two wins and a draw did give them a fighting chance. And I would back them in a fight quicker than I'd back Everton, Brentford or Leeds or or Newcastle, to be totally honest. Um, They're still well within touching distance of all of these teams. They've still got a game in hand on Leeds. They've still got two games in hand on Brentford. Win those, you're out of the bottom three. It's as simple as that. Win those and you will be out of the bottom three. Win one of them and you'll pull yourself out of that bottom three. No games in the Premier League tonight. The next set of games will be obviously at the weekend. And we do have a full slate of Premier League games this weekend, including some absolute belters. It really is shaping up to be a really, really good weekend in the Premier League, including a Monday night game, which I always enjoy. So something to look forward to this weekend. One, two, three, four. But I would say there's six really good games this weekend, which is good. Uh, moving on then to the FA Cup. Last night, we had Peterborough nil, Manchester City 2. City went with a strong team. They lined up with Ederson, Canseo, Diaz, Aki, Zinchenko. And I'm great to see Zinchenko given the captaincy. I thought that was a really good gesture by Guardiola. Then Foden, Fernandinho and Gundogan in midfield. Mares, Gabriel Jesus and Jack Grealish up front. And coming off the bench, they had Stones and Laporte who replaced Diaz and Aki. But on the bench, they also had Sterling, Rodri, De Bruyne, Silva, uh, Kieran Slicker, good to see another young player getting there, and then Scott Carson, just there as a bit of window dressing, I suppose. But a really strong team. And to the credit of Peterborough, they matched City for the first hour. They matched them right up until Riyad Mahrez scored the opening goal. They forced Ederson into a couple of good saves. They had a couple of chances that they put just wide. They did give City a good run for their money, but the quality just came, became too much. And Mahrez on 60, in off the left, 
in off the right, sorry, cuts onto his left foot. The keeper probably should do a little bit better, but it's a good goal. The second goal by Jack Grealish is outstanding. It's a brilliant ball from Phil Foden over the top of the defence. Grealish's first touch is brilliant and he slots home with minimal fuss. Very, very good goal and a good win for City. On they march into the next round, as was expected of them. Crystal Palace 2, Stoke City 1. Czech Coyote put Stoke, or put Palace rather, one up on 53 minutes, tapping home from a set piece before Josh Tymon, former Hull left back, equalised on 58. Yarrow Riedeveld with the winner on 82 minutes and Palace are through to the next round. Nice cup run for Vieira's men. Again, they're another team that took it very, very seriously. They went with Butland in goal, Nat Klein at right back, Anderson and Gwehi at centre-back. Um, Adara Mola, who's a player I wasn't familiar with, an Irish left-back, uh, he started and played really, really well. That, I believe, was his debut. Yeah, his first start for the club. Um, he played very, very well. So he's another one that we, we can be excited about now. Uh, Ireland haven't had much luck, but we've got a lot of good young players coming through. Koyate and Will Hughes in midfield. Ayu, Elise and Zaha behind Matete. He brought on Milivojevic, brought on Schlupp, brought on Benteke, brought on Gallagher and brought on Riedeveld, who got the winner. So a very strong team, taking it very, very seriously. A little bit disappointed not to see uh, DiMaggio Wright-Phillips getting a run for Stoke, but I suppose they'd already made five subs. And so they only made, no, they only made four subs. Yeah, they only made four subs. Why didn't he bring him on? You're chasing a game. Surely you want a goal scorer on the pitch. Strange. Um, I thought they'd made five subs. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Palace are through. Stoke are out. Also out are Tottenham. Middlesbrough won. Tottenham nil. Borough's cup run is, is just very, very impressive. They knocked out United away. They've knocked out Spurs at home. And they'll go into the next round absolutely fearless. A Josh Coburn goal on 107 minutes. Really well-taken goal by the 19-year-old. And he is having himself a very, very impressive season. He's only really getting his full breakthrough this season. Last season, he played four games. He scored one goal. This season, he's played 12 times, scored four goals. But that 12 times is a little bit misleading. Because if you look at the minutes played, he played... 254 minutes in the in the championship, 86 in the FA Cup in two games, and 63 in the in the EFL Cup. So overall, you're looking at what about 400 minutes played and four goals scored. It's a goal every hundred minutes. That's not bad for a 19 year old. Uh, he's done really well in the Premier League too, the under 23 league four goals and an assist in just 300 minutes. So this might be something that Villa have or that that Borough have here. This might be a kid that's worth keeping an eye on. Uh, He's a big, big unit. He's strong. He's quick. He's got a good first touch. He strikes the ball very cleanly. I believe they stole him from Sunderland. I could be wrong on that, but I believe they stole him from Sunderland. But great goal last night and brilliant for Borough to get through. Now, I will say... Spurs had a goal disallowed. Um, Harry Kane scored from short distance, but he was being fouled in the build-up to that as the free kick was being, or the ball was coming in. Harry Kane's jersey was basically been pulled off him. He managed to wriggle free and then went into an offside position, and that's why the goal was disallowed. But there was a real shout there for a penalty. Wasn't given, and such is life. Um, Borough were impressive and you have to give credit to the job that Chris Wilder has done coming in mid-season is never easy and he is at times patching a team together I mean you look at Neil Taylor playing left wing back he's a guy that they picked up off the scrap heap Duncan Watmore played up front they picked him up off the scrap heap prior to Wilder's arrival but you know Johnny House and he's been around a long time he's not Ending spectacular. Paddy McNair has had some really tough times in his career. Isaiah Jones was phenomenal last night. Probably the best player on the pitch. Really, really impressive. 
um, gave Cessnion a really, really difficult time. Now, Cessnion is not the best defender in the world, but still gave him a difficult time. You've got Lee Peltier, Saul Bamba. These are really experienced players coming off the bench. Interesting, though, that uh, following Balogun was on the bench. I thought he might have started, but that's just how it goes at the minute for that young player who really needs to get out from under the shell of Arsenal and go and play somewhere regularly and have a home and play consistent minutes because he's a very talented player. But if he's not going to break through at Borough, then you have to start asking some questions. Tonight, we have three games. Uh, we have a 7-15 kickoff, which is Luton Town at home to Chelsea, Kenilworth Road, always one of the best grounds in the country. It's just such a unique stadium and it's hidden away. You walk by it and not notice it was there. It's tight. It's It had the artificial pitch for years, which was when Luton were a top flight team, they were just horrible to play against because they had that, uh, that artificial pitch. But, you know, they've, uh, they've been through the trials and tribulations over recent years. And this season, they're just doing brilliantly. Nathan Jones is a really good manager. And I don't know to this day why it didn't work for him at Stoke. But the jobs he's done in both spells at Luton have been tremendous. And this season, they're sixth in the championship, which nobody expected. And they're progressing in the FA Cup. They beat Harrogate 4-0. Adebayo, Jerome, as Cameron Jerome, Premier League fans will remember him. Kai Naismith and um, Luke Berry with the goals. And then they beat Cambridge 3-0 with Reese Burke, formerly of, of West Ham, Carlos Mendes Gomez, and Admiral Musque, who's got one of the best names in football. Admiral. Like you're not, you're setting your child up for real success there. You call your child a name like that, they've got to be a success. So yeah, 4-0, 3-0, they've looked good. It has been obviously lower league opposition. This will be a massive step up. But you'd wonder with Chelsea coming in tonight with the disappointment of the weekend, a lot of minutes put into the players' legs, a couple of injuries picked up along the way, Tuchel having a big cry, everything going on around the club. You just wonder if Chelsea might be a little bit vulnerable tonight. And Luton have won their last three league games in a row. You know, they beat West Brom, they beat Stoke, and they beat Derby. They're in decent form. They're looking impressive. They're playing good football. And that's just an awkward place to go with that tight little stadium. So could be one to keep an eye on. Could be one to keep an eye on. Chelsea, you would expect to win. Uh, and thus far, they've knocked out Chesterfield and Plymouth after extra time to advance. They weren't particularly good against Plymouth. Plymouth gave them a real go at Stamford Bridge. A real, real go at Stamford Bridge. And... Um, it took a, a Marcus Alonso goal an extra time to win it. But you just you'd wonder if they're maybe a little bit vulnerable tonight. Obviously, they've been to the FA Cup final the last two seasons and lost both cup finals. They, they probably want to go one better this year. Uh, we do also have at 7:30 Southampton versus West Ham. Saints going well in the Premier League at the minute. They're unbeaten in five in the league unbeaten in six in all competitions, including their win over Coventry in the last round. They've needed extra time in both rounds to get through. Uh, they beat Swansea 3-2, Redmond, El Yanassi, and Long with the goals there. They beat Coventry 2-1 last time out, Stuart Armstrong and Kyle Walker-Peters with the goals there. The Stuart Armstrong goal is one of the best goals I've seen all season. They'll go into this game confident. West Ham got a good win at the weekend, but their form has been a little bit hit and miss over the last little while. The draws against Leicester and Newcastle were disappointing. The defeat to Leeds was very, very disappointing. But they're going well in the Cup. They beat Leeds 2-0 in the third round, Lanzini and Jared Bowen. They weren't particularly good against Kidderminster. They went one down, needed that Declan Rice goal in the 91st minute to get to extra time, and then a Jared Bowen goal in the 121st minute to win, uh, Kidderminster, I thought, were a bit hard done by. They, they deserved it to get to penalties, at least. So this one should be a good game. This should be a really well-balanced game. And uh, with Saints having home advantage, you might want to lean that way. 
The third game then is Liverpool versus Norwich. This is an 8.15 kickoff, which is a weird time, but it is what it is. Uh, Liverpool got here thus far by beating Shrewsbury 4-1 with goals from Cade Gordon, two from Fabinho and one from Bobby Firmino. And Cardiff 3-1 with goals by Jota, Minamino and Elliot. They'll be favourites. They come in on the high after winning the League Cup. They will very much be the favourites to advance and uh, and head on in search of another cup. So that one's tonight with Norwich coming in. They've beaten Charlton and Wolves. The Wolves game was a really good win for them. Came in the middle of their little mini resurgence, but the league form has fallen off three defeats in a row. They haven't looked particularly good in recent weeks and they've got some players injured. You'd expect as well with Brentford at the weekend, Norwich will play a weekend team and, and be focused on that league game. So you'd expect Liverpool to get themselves through to the quarterfinals. So those are all tonight. Uh, tomorrow night, we get Everton versus Boreham Wood. And then Monday, it's Nottingham Forest versus Huddersfield. Um, the draw, I think, is... Am I right in saying the draw is Friday? I could be wrong. I thought the draw was Friday. I could be completely wrong. But, um, yeah, three good games tonight. The Luton-Chelsea game, you'd expect Chelsea, but just there's a little small chance they're a little bit vulnerable. The Southampton-West Ham game is probably the game of the night, and then obviously Liverpool versus Norwich. Uh, Everton-Boreham-Wood should be an interesting one tomorrow. Everton should win comfortably, obviously, but you just never know what Lampard. I will take a break, and when we come back, we have some news, we have some speculative chat about Roman Abramovich, and uh, we'll do the gossip, and we'll be done. I'll see you then. Right, welcome back. So, uh, Guy has corrected me during the break. The draw for the quarterfinals of the FA Cup will actually take place on Thursday prior to Everton versus Wood. So you can watch that then and see who your team will face. Obviously, Manchester City will probably be hoping for Borough or Luton if they get through or one of the teams from that Forest-Huddersfield game because they do enjoy a nice lower league fixture in the FA Cup. Uh, right, we have some news. So, Everton have suspended their commercial sponsorship arrangements with Russian companies, primarily those owned by Alisher Uzmanov. Uh, this is obviously going to be very difficult for Everton, considering USM Holdings sponsor their training ground. They have exclusive naming rights option on the new stadium. And there has been a lot of talk that Usmanov is actually the one funding this new stadium at Bramley Dock or Bramley Dock. So you'd wonder if the stadium is actually a viable option for them now. Um, it is, for the moment, merely just pictures and artist renderings and some CGI. But we'll wait and we'll see what happens. It's a very unique situation. We've obviously got what's going on at Chelsea and we'll get to that. But for Everton... There's been a lot of talk that Usmanov is the one with the money propping up Mashiri, and when they're making the kind of losses they've been making and they're in the position that they're now in and facing potential relegation to the championship, the future is, is quite uncertain forever. And you would wonder if there isn't a major come-to-Jesus moment coming up for them. Um, they've also got sponsorship deals with a company called Megaphone, which is also owned by Usmanov. Uh, they sponsor Everton's women's team and they sponsor the, the, the sleeve sponsor or whatever that's called of the first team. Is that not Angry? I thought that was Angry Birds. I could be wrong. Um, either way, it, it doesn't make a good look for Everton. It really doesn't. But they've, they've dropped all commercial sponsorships with USM, Megaphone, and Yota. So we wait and we see. We wait and we see what happens to Everton. Things are not looking good for the Ev right now. 
we know what a bad situation they're in in the league. We've been over it. We know they don't have a particularly good manager. They've appointed a new director of football whose track record wouldn't exactly get you all that excited. And the likelihood is that in the summer, Dominic Calvert-Lewin will look to leave. Richarlison will probably look to leave. You might get one or two others that begin to look about and think, you know, even staying in the league, this isn't for me. I think I'll move on. But losing Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison would be just hammer blows. I know Calvert-Lewin hasn't played a whole lot this season, and that is the biggest reason that they're in the position that they're in. The lack of Dominic Calvert-Lewin in the team, because you look at what he was able to do in the previous couple of seasons for them, and the goals that he was scoring, he was just one of, he was one of the best forwards in the Premier League. There's just no way around that. You know, last season he gets 16 goals in 33 games. The season before, 13 and 36. A lot of them came in the second half of that season as well. And he was a big part of why Everton were comfortable in mid-table. You take those goals out, you take out everything else that he was doing, the hold-up play, the link play, running the channels, occupying defenders, bringing defenders out of central areas and allowing runners in from midfield and from wide. He was a big contributor in all areas for Everton's attack. You take that out. He's only played eight games this season. And you look at the start of the season when Everton were doing okay under Benitez and they were, you know, beating Southampton, getting a draw with Leeds, beating Brighton, beating Burnley, beating Norwich, drawing with Manchester United. A big part of that was Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And then he got hurt and we've barely seen him since. And he's hurt again now. And without him, you look at the squad and you don't see many goal scorers. You know, you'd look at the attacking players in their team. Richarlison, I mean, he's a good player without question, but he's not a big time goal scorer. Career high of 15, 41 games. 13 is his Premier League high. Last season, he got seven. He's not going to get you the goals you need, as good as he is. Um, Damari Gray had a brilliant start to the season. He's tailed off massively, but he's not a big-time goal scorer. He's got five in the Premier League this season. That's his best Premier League season. The only season he scored more than that, he scored six in 41 championship games in 14-15. He got six in 43 in all competitions. This season, he's got six in 25. He's having a career year but he's not a big-time goal scorer. Andros Townsend, not a big-time goal scorer. He's a wide player who has very questionable habits when it comes to his shot selection. Career year was 9-45 and 45 for Everton, uh, or for, for Crystal Palace, rather, in 18-19. Only six of them came in the league. You go beyond that, Vic, uh, Alex Awobi, he's more of a midfielder than an attacking player. And he's never scored more than three in a Premier League season. His career year was six in 51 in all competitions for Arsenal in 18-19, which, prompt, which prompted Everton to pay 33, 34 million for him. It's a bad buy. Good player, but bad buy. Anthony Gordon's a kid. He doesn't have a track record of scoring. Cenk Tusen's been a massive flop. Solomon Rondon works the channels well. He's a hard-working target man type but he's not a big time goal scorer he's never been a big time goal scorer his career year was 14 goals in 30 games from Malaga and that was in 2010-11 you know he got 13 in 26 44 but again, that's 14-15. That's a long time ago. Since then, you're looking at 10 and 40, 8 and 39, 10 and 39, 12 and, and 33 for Newcastle that season. He was there on loan when they did the little swap deal. Newcastle got him and West Brom got Dwight Gale, I think. Uh, didn't do particularly great in China. And then, obviously, he was in Russia for a year and he comes back to Everton. He's got one goal this season. They've got Anwar Al-Ghazi in on loan. He scored 10 goals last season, but a lot of them were penalties. 
they just don't have goals without Calvert-Lewin. There's just not enough goals, not enough consistent, reliable goals. You'd wonder again, who made the decision to loan out Moise Keane? Why was that decision taken? Because that's a guy who can get you goals. Last season with PSG, he got 17 goals. I know it hasn't worked well from at Everton, but has he really been given chances? He got one season. He scored two in 33. It wasn't a good season at all, but then he was immediately loaned out the next season and this season. And there's a reason PSG and Juventus are coming in for him. Like these, It's not like he's gone on loan to the Championship or to a Norwich or a Brentford. He's gone on loan to two of the top clubs in Europe and they've loved him. And Everton can't find use for him. Like, wouldn't he have been a better option when Calvert-Lewin got hurt than Solomon Rondon? All very, very strange. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, Chelsea then. So, Roman Abramovich's future in doubt after Swiss billionaire claims he's been offered a chance to buy the club. Roman Abramovich's future as Chelsea owner is in doubt after a Swiss billionaire claimed he's been offered the chance to buy the club. Hans-Jörg Weiss told Swiss newspaper Blick that Abramovich wants to get rid of Chelsea quickly after the threat of sanctions was raised in Parliament. Abramovich gave stewardship and care of Chelsea to its foundation trustees following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Chelsea have chosen not to respond to the claims of 86-year-old Weiss, or Weiss. The West London club have previously denied reports that they are up for sale. What this doesn't mention is that the uh, stewards of the Chelsea Foundation refused to take on the stewardship and care of the club. Uh, Abramovich is alleged to have strong ties to Vladimir Putin. There's no alleged about it. He clearly does, and he can deny it all he wants, but there's enough photographic evidence and there's enough history of interaction between the two to prove it. Other Russian billionaires have already been subject of European Union sanctions where their assets have been frozen. They include Usmanov, who has the commercial links to Everton. The UK government is yet to sanction Abramovich or Usmanov. Weiss said Abramovich is trying to sell all of his villas in England. He also wants to get rid of Chelsea quickly. I and three other people received an option, an offer rather, on Tuesday to buy Chelsea from Abramovich. A spokesperson declined to comment on these claims, which speaks volumes. Saying nothing is nearly worse than saying something because normally Chelsea have, or anyone close to Bramovich has denied any of these rumours, but now they're saying nothing. Should Bramovich decide to, to sell Chelsea, it will be a seismic moment for the club and English football. I'm not sure it'll be a seismic moment for the English football, but it will be a seismic moment for the club. Having bought the Blues in 2003 for $140 million, Chelsea have been transformed under the Russians' reign, and in many ways, it has set the template for how much finance was needed to compete at the top end. In total, Abramovich has loaned the club more than $1.5 billion, which has brought great, great success. Under his stewardship, the club have won the Champions League twice, the Premier League and FA Cup five times each, the Europa League twice, and the League Cup three times. And you'd have to imagine that Depending on who would buy the club, a lot of that success could disappear. Now, the issue here is how much does he want? So the, the Telegraph, who had a story on this, say he wants $4 billion. So you would imagine Chelsea as an entity aren't worth $4 billion. So what he wants is he wants his billion and a half that he's loaned the club back on top of about two and a half billion for the club. And two and a half billion for the club does seem about right. When you consider what Usmanov sold his shares in Arsenal for, two and a half billion for Chelsea seems about right. But you're not getting the club for two and a half billion. You're getting the club for four billion because he wants his money back. So on a four billion investment for Chelsea, can you ever really make a profit? Are Chelsea ever going to be worth more than that? It doesn't seem likely. They're at best the fourth biggest team in England. And with the way City are growing, they're looking to catch Chelsea. So 
if you're an owner looking to buy into English football, are you better off buying, let's say, Chelsea for four billion? Or would you be better off perhaps buying Leeds or Everton or even Spurs, who you'd buy for substantially less and could actually make a profit on? Or West Ham. Now, I know they've been taken over recently, but money talks. One of the reasons that Newcastle were so appealing to the Saudis was that the purchase price was in the 300 million range. They wouldn't spend 4 billion on Chelsea. They will want to be able to grow the asset value of Newcastle. There's no growing the asset value of Chelsea when your sunk cost on the, the debt can't be recovered. The other thing to factor in is anyone buying Chelsea is also going to have to foot the bill for a new stadium, which Chelsea do need. Now, we saw how expensive the Tottenham stadium got. It was projected to be 700, billion, 700 million. It ended up topping out at over a billion. It will probably be even more expensive for Chelsea given where they would be building, given the cost of real estate in that area. Now, I know they could knock Stamford Bridge and potentially go and play at Wembley, but you're still going to have to buy up some land and some property around where the bridge is now to extend out. That's what Spurs had to do. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very costly thing to do, especially in that part of London. Abramovich put the stadium on the back boiler, back burner, back burner, back boiler, something you have in your house, uh, on the back burner, and it hasn't really been resurrected. But Chelsea do need a new stadium. You know, you look around at the other big six clubs, United have Old Trafford, which despite its flaws in terms of, you know, a little bit outdated and things like that, is still a cash cow for them. Tottenham have this shiny new stadium. Arsenal have the Emirates, which is a great moneymaker for them. City have the Etihad. They don't own it, but they have use of it. And then obviously Liverpool have extended and expanded Anfield and modernised it and upgraded it. And with this new extension coming on the Anfield road end, they'll have a 60,000 capacity. So Chelsea will have the smallest capacity, the oldest stadium, the stadium with the least amenities and facilities. And that is a bit of an issue for them. You know, as they try to grow the club, one of the ways to do it is to get more fans going to the game. And if they can't expand the stadium, that's not possible. Because Chelsea sold out pretty much every week. So there's another billion, say billion and a half potentially, on top of your four billion investment. Like that's a that's an awful lot of money for someone to have to come up with. And the other thing is, who really wants to do business with Abramovich at the minute? Who wants to be seen to be lining his pockets? It's an uncertain time for Chelsea without question. What well, I saw saw yesterday, what I thought was was interesting, was a lot of their fans sort of dismissing Abramovich and saying, "Well, if he goes, he goes. Like we'll be fine." And I. I I don't think you will. I don't think you really understand just what an incredible impact that man has had on that football club. Like, if we just look at the honours won. So, Chelsea were founded in 1905. Abramovich bought the club in 2003. So, for 98 years, it was Chelsea without Abramovich. And for 19 years, it's been Chelsea with the Bramovich. In the 98 years, they won one league title. In the 19, they've won five. In the 98 years, they won three FA Cups. In the 19, they've won five. In the 98 years, they won one league cup, sorry, two league cups, and they've won three in the 19 with him. In the 98 years before Abramovich, they won two European Cup Cup Winners' Cups and a European Super Cup. In the 19 with him, they've won two European Cups, two UEFA Cups, 
a Super Cup and a World Club Cup. Like, there's just no way around it. You've won a league and FA Cup double, a league and league cup double, a league, uh, sorry, yeah, a league and league cup double under his stewardship. Two of them, actually, two league and league cup doubles. Like, he has been everything for that club. Absolutely everything. The money he has spent, the legends of your club that he has brought in, the only of the modern Chelsea legends. Zola was pre-Roman, obviously. John Terry came through the academy and Lampard was brought in two years before uh, Roman brought the, bought the club. But since he bought the club, think of all the great players he's brought in. You know, Ashley Cole, Petr Cech, Thibaut Courtois, Aspilicueta, Branislav Ivanovic, Ricardo Carvalho, Essien, Makaleli, Balak, Kante. You know, you go through position by position and you start to look at what he's done and what he's done for this club and how much money he's invested in. Without his influence, without his input, Chelsea don't have the opportunity to be the club that they are today. And I've seen some of their fans say, oh, but our academy will keep producing players so we'll be able to sell them and that will fund our first team. How do you think the academy funds itself? How do you think the academy got to being where it is now? Like Chelsea's budget for their academy is bigger than some clubs' budget for their entire club. They put so much money, so much resources, so much time and energy and so many people into recruitment and training at levels from under six up. Again, I mentioned it yesterday. Go and read Ryan Baldi's book, The Dream Factory, and read about Chelsea's academy, and it will blow your mind, the setup that they have. But new ownership may come in and think, why are we spending all this money here? Let's scale this back. And all of a sudden, you'll find that a lot of the players that you pick up because you've got all these little satellite academies, well, they no longer end up at your club. They end up somewhere else. They end up at Arsenal or Spurs or West Ham or Crystal Palace or Watford or wherever. Roman Abramovich leaving Chelsea, unless it's a country who buys them, and there aren't many left that would have that kind of wealth, to come in and just pump money into the club. You might be looking at Kuwait, Kuwait, Bahrain maybe, but he's he's looked at the, the big wig in Bahrain has looked at clubs before. He's never wanted to pay that sort of money. If Chelsea were on the market for four or 500 million, then you'd see a big influx of people wanting to buy the clubs. But for 4 billion, to then have to continue to pump money in year after year, that's just not a viable option. Now, nothing may happen. It may well be that nothing happens and this war in in Ukraine ends and everything goes back to normal and Abramovich keeps doing what he's done and Chelsea just carry on regardless. But as things stand, it there's a massive cloud of uncertainty hanging over the club. And it's clearly something that's causing internal stress because if you saw how Thomas Tuchel reacted to the questions he was asked at yesterday's press conference, it's clearly something that's weighing on everybody. And look, I get that Tuchel is the kind of the face of the club as the manager. And, you know, there's two sides of the argument. One is a group of people that will say, well, look, he's a football manager. He's not, a politician, he's not Abramovich, asked these questions of somebody else. But the bottom line is, he does still take his check signed by Roman Abramovich. He is still happy to take that money. He's happy to be part of what is a sports-washing enterprise, the original sports-washing enterprise. Roman was the first to do it. PSG and City came later. They're currently the seventh most valuable club in the world. They're 
value according to Forbes is 2.39 billion. So about 2.5 would be about right for the the price to buy the club. But again, he will want that money back that he's loaned the club. That's a billion and a half. So they're slightly more valuable than Arsenal, less valuable allegedly than Manchester City. That doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, less valuable than Liverpool and Manchester United. The idea that Manchester City are worth close to the value of Liverpool and Manchester United is ridiculous, frankly. Um, Barca, Real and Bayern are the top three, then United, then Liverpool. There's just no way Manchester City are the sixth most valuable club in the world. Uh, in terms of the Deloitte Money League, Chelsea slot in an eighth. <clears throat> they make the eighth highest revenue. Uh, PSG above them, again, sports washing. City above them, again, sports washing. Liverpool, United, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, and Barcelona above them. And again, you just you have to just take everything you read about City, PSG, and Chelsea, to be fair, with a pinch of salt. But I do think there's more of a reality with what Chelsea earn now than there is of City or PSG, because Chelsea have established themselves over, what are we looking at now, 17 years since they won their first league title? 17 years of real success. Not the case for City, 10 years only for them. And they started off from a much lower base than Chelsea did. Chelsea were already a club getting top four football, winning domestic cups and, and cup winners cups. City had been a non-entity since the 70s. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chelsea, it, it at the 2.5 billion, you could probably justify it. At 4 billion, it's, it's impossible. And the other issue, like I say, is that for the types of owners that people are suggesting, you know, like more of the Saudis, more of the people that own Manchester City, more like the people that own PSG, they don't buy clubs for 4 billion. They buy them for 400 million and then pump money in. So to wait and see, we'll wait and see. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? but it should be fascinating over the next few weeks to see exactly what happens. And if he's looking for a quick sale, who knows who ends up at the club? Chelsea could end up with some bad owners. Uh, we'll do the gossip and we'll be done for today. Manchester City have held talks with Erling Haaland's agent, according to the spoofer with the catchphrase. Uh, we'll just call shenanigans on that one. Dortmund have not given up, given up hope of keeping Haaland beyond the summer transfer window, despite Barcelona also showing interest. Chelsea could look to sell Armando Brogia and Tino Angerin this summer. Uh, I believe Southampton want both of them. The representatives of Antonio Rudiger are in constant dialogue with PSG and Real Madrid. A deal to take Andreas Christensen to Barcelona is at an advanced stage. So... With Aspilicueta potentially going plus Rudiger plus Christensen and uncertainty over who the owner is going to be and if it's still Roman, will he be able to spend money? Chelsea could be in a bit of bother next season. Even if they manage to keep Roman as the owner, if he can't pump money in this summer or Chelsea's ability to spend is a little bit if, if their asset is frozen, if the assets are frozen, Chelsea can't spend any money. And those three leave, you'd have to ask big questions about what Chelsea's defence looks like next year. They can bring Levi Colwell back from the loan at Huddersfield. But a, a Chalaba, Silva, Colwell back three, talented as and all as Colwell is, and I like Chalaba, that's not a defence that's winning you anything. Uh, not next season anyway. Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich could be open to selling the club. That's fine. Uh, interim boss Ralph Ranić has largely been ruled out of taking charge permanently at Manchester United. We always knew that was going to be the case. 
Arsenal will look to reward Bakayo Saka at the end of the season with improved contract terms, which makes sense. It really does make sense. Arsenal's French midfielder, Matteo Guendouzi, will join Marseille on a permanent deal for £9 at the end of the season. That's low for a player of his talent and his age, and that's just more bad squad management by Arteta. Football director John Murta says a thorough process is underway to identify Manchester United's next manager. I'd be willing to bet a fair bit of money that Pochettino still is the top target after their thorough process. Borussia Dortmund are interested in Chelsea's 25-year-old Timo Werner. They won't pay his wages, so I have doubts. I think they'll just buy Adiemi, and that'll be just what they'll do to replace Haaland. Robert Lewandowski is yet to make a decision on his future, but says he's open to anything. He's at a contract at the end of next season, so Bayern have a big decision to make on him this year. Arsenal have joined the race to sign Lewandowski. We'll just move on. Barcelona are keen to sign Orlean Chouameni. Just leave him alone. He's too good for your club. Simple as that. Uh, former, stri- former Spain striker Diego Costa is close to joining Brazilian club Corinthians. I mean, if I was describing Diego Costa, I'd probably say former Chelsea striker or former Atletico Madrid striker before I called him a former Spain striker. I know he did play for Spain, but he's about as Spanish as I am. And how many caps did he even get? It can't be many. Uh, Diego Costa. He got a sum total of 24 caps. That's actually more than I thought, to be fair. That is actually more than I thought. Played for the national team for five years. It's more caps than I thought. He also got two for Brazil uh, before switching. Um, Former Liverpool goalkeeper David James thinks, well, that's the problem, David James thinking, uh, Cuevin Keller could leave Liverpool to make a name for himself, to just keep his nonsense to himself. Uh, Jurgen Klopp will only let Kelleher leave on loan. I don't even think he'll let him leave on loan next season. Leicester City and Brighton are monitoring 16-year-old Millwall forward Zach Lovelace. Don't know anything about him, but Brighton and Leicester have very good recruitment departments. And if they're looking at this player, then you can be certain he's a talent. Uh, 16, just turned 16 in January. Uh, Three games for Millwall this season. That's impressive. Made his debut as a 15-year-old. That is very, very impressive. The second youngest Millwall player ever. And that's it. That is me for today, folks. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Have a good evening. Enjoy the games. And we'll speak tomorrow. Send in any questions for tomorrow's pod on either the Anfield Index Discord or to Mr. Drinkle on Twitter, at Guy Drinkle. Thank you and goodbye. Podcast Network.